Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. This week, we're going to talk about a topic that I know many of you are interested in, and we haven't talked about it in a while, And but we got a suggestion from one of our listeners, Irene, in which she said, why don't you talk a little bit about life plan communities? Sometimes they're called continuing care, retirement communities, essentially same thing. So we thought, you know, it's been a while, and that's that's an issue that is becoming more pressing for some of you uh, with every passing year. So we thought, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about kind of what's out there in general terms and give you some understanding of ha- how this option would work. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what the expense sometimes is. Again, we have to be vague because of the variation between quality and location and content of the deal and the contracts do tend to vary. There are some common denominators we can talk about. So we'll give you a sense of what the benefits are, you know, what are the drawbacks, um, what are the things you should watch out for, and um, and really talk about some wonderful advantages that, I mean, it's a it's an interesting conception as a place for people to be able to go and stay. And that's really the underlying attraction to this entire discussion is that it solves the problem that people have as they age where on the one hand, they are at a point where they don't need any particular special care. But on the other hand, they foresee that if they live long enough, there's a good chance they will. And there's a possibility that it won't simply be assistance, but it may need to be skilled care, which is a phrase that's used to refer to nursing homes. So how do you plan for something where there's that sort of potential variation and you don't know which direction things will go for sure? Well, that's, that is the quandary uh, that is solved, presumably, by this as an option. Um, this this says come and live and our location our campus and this campus will allow you to start out wherever you are you could even start out in skilled care uh, but it's really designed for somebody to take full advantage of of the permanence of the location and the fact that it's okay to age it's okay to need additional services to need additional care that's fine because we're we're equipped to provide that over time, whatever your level of need is. So you start out, Many most people start out in independent living. Uh, and over time, perhaps they feel, well, I need some assistance. And then you go to another level. And they may never go to skilled care. Uh, but it's a nice idea. You can see the attractiveness of this business model, of this uh, residential housing model, we'll call it, for people who are older. Uh, so sometimes it's called a life plan community. Sometimes it's called simply continuing care uh, residential community. So you'll hear us use those phrases back and forth. I just want to acquaint you with those terms. I want to remind you that it's very important to us to get subscriptions. Um, for you to press that like button is helpful, but the subscribe button is the most important thing to us. 
And, you know, we don't sell a product on here. I mean, actually, the show is sponsored by Tucker Allen, so we do talk about Tucker Allen. But to be honest with you, the the efforts that we put into this show is something that is of personal value to us more than monetary, quite frankly. We do love to do it because we think that we're being of great value to, to many of you. Let us know that. Uh, you Like us, yes. But the most important thing we look at is subscriptions. So where should we start? I kind of gave you an overview. Um, I will tell you, I did a little bit of field work here. Uh, the field work was when I was in Naples, I looked at uh, a couple of places. Uh, there's one prominent community there uh, that I probably will not choose to choose to mention just because I don't want to mistakenly um, say something that's not technically correct. Uh, so I have a little bit of concern about whether um, whether I might do them an injustice on something. This was a result of my visit. So since I want to talk about some numbers, that's my hesitancy. If I was just talking about the quality of the facility and things that I observed, of course, I'm comfortable with that. But but when I give you some numbers, I want to be fair to them. And maybe there there would be some conditions where the money might be a little less or you might be able to qualify for some sort of discount. So I don't want to get into that. So for that's the reason, I'm not going to name the community. Anyway, uh, with us today, uh, Ben Zinkel. So Ben, you'll know he's been with us. Uh, he's done several shows now, and he's he's a uh, an, a state planning attorney with Tucker Allen. Uh, so he's kind of the authority in estate planning, and and he's also has some particular knowledge in this field. Uh, he's researched it. He's dealt with it. So um, I thought this is good to have Ben join us and help us. So uh, Ben. You suggested an outline for us to go through. Uh, with that, with the introduction that I gave, maybe we can uh, plunge in. Should we start by talking about about regulations, state regulations like Missouri? We'll focus on Missouri because we know that's where most of you are. But we'll mention Florida because uh, I have a place there and I spent some time there. Plus, many of you, if you're considering a place other than Missouri, statistics are that that place would be would be Florida. Lots of Midwesterners on on particularly the west coast of Florida. So talk about the rules that govern continuing care communities, the regulations, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. In Missouri, the Missouri has rules regulating these continuing care retirement communities or life plan communities, uh, as they're called, and they're kind of all lumped into the regulations and statutes uh, governing nursing homes and skilled care. So it's all it's a Missouri has a more comprehensive kind of all in one regulations and statutes with um, for continuing care retirement communities as opposed to Florida. Florida has specific statutes that are for these communities. One of the biggest questions that you may have when you're considering a continuing care retirement community is where is my money going? What are they doing with my money and if they do go bankrupt or go out of business, can I get my money back, or is that gone? Uh, and in Florida, they address that head-on. They, they require these uh, communities to, in these facilities, to have 30% of their operating expenses as a liquid cash reserve at all times to protect against that insolvency. Uh, they require any escrows that they may have that they may have to put in money into escrows that they have pretty robust regulations on who can run those escrows, where, where, what kind of banks and trust companies can um, hold the, the, those funds. Uh, whereas Missouri doesn't really have a lot of that. 
Um, but for both states, it's pretty up in the air what happens when these places do go out, out of business or bankrupt. Uh, if they do go bankrupt, most residents would be considered unconcerned, uh, unsecured creditors. And what that means is that once a uh, once a corporation or company goes bankrupt, they declare what's called Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And or all that- seven. Or seven, uh, but typically it's chapter eleven, and, and all that is is uh, is kind of a negotiation among all of the creditors to see who gets paid first, who and where all of the money, all the leftover money, can go as they're restructuring their business. So let me let me interrupt you here. So mm-hmm. just so you're following us, um, you can you can enter some communities by paying simply a monthly fee. There's a small down payment, but not a large one. There is that model, but it's clearly the minority of what you see out there. Most are based on a substantial front-end cost. I think the business reason for that is there are, especially in the last few years, concerned about changing costs of health care and housing and other expenses that these communities incur on a daily basis because people's entire lifestyles, all those things you associate with living expenses, things that go into the consumer price index, those are all things that are being funded essentially, not all, but most are being assured uh, by this community that they will cover those costs over time. And that's a scary thought. So many of them want to, to hedge their bets to allow for inflationary and other forces that might occur. And so they ask for a substantial front end. Um, as to what that front end would be, it depends. The nicer places, and this is where I'll go to my example in Florida, there's a, there's a very nice place in Florida that that has several locations, and in, particularly in the Naples area. And they, they're they gorgeous campuses. I mean, the campus has a recreation facility. It has several restaurants. Um, it has, of course, all the group activities that you could imagine that would be going on. They do that. They serve healthy cuisine if that's what you want, and there is a big push for healthy cuisine and healthy lifestyle generally. They have a shuttle bus that runs just continually throughout the day going to any significant location that you may want to go in in Naples. Uh, but there's so much on the campus. It's a huge campus. It must be not quite a mile square, but it's maybe a half a mile square. It's a it's a big facility and and lots of different housing options. You know, there are some low rise almost townhouse-type properties, and there are others that are traditional condominiums. Uh, There are lakes, gorgeous views. Uh, It's just a a wonderful facility that has lots of stuff to do, lots of entertainment, theater, incidentally, as well as other things. Um, So their their approach is to say, look, if if you're going to move in, we have a regular price. And, for example, a two-bedroom condo in such a facility – with, that was twelve. It was thirteen hundred square feet. Would have been about one point five million on the front end. Some of you are saying that that can't be correct. Others are saying that seems very reasonable. <laughs> I think I think those of you who think it's very reasonable are in the minority. But uh, but I can just tell you with prices being what they are, that's probably not that shocking. Uh, definitely, it would be cheaper in St. Louis. Let me add. But if you're going to live in a place like Florida, I don't think that's a shocking number. Uh, so 1.5 million up front. It is partially refundable. And I won't another reason that 
that I don't want to to name this facility is just because I don't know the details of the refund policy. I know that they do have a refund policy, which I think is that you can get back up to, say, 30 40% back, and it may be a higher percentage. Uh, but uh, this is an incentive for people who think, yeah, I know this is where I want to be. I feel confident. I'm not going to change my mind next month and decide to move out because under those circumstances, you'd probably get nothing back or very little. I, I think that uh, they have policies that anticipate if something happens to you early on, then it's a sympathetic policy. It doesn't sound as brutal as you might think. You give them $1.5 million and goodbye to that. And it's it's a policy that incorporates you know special circumstances to some extent, but but you could easily end up getting very little back uh, depending on how long you were there and the circumstances. So just be aware that that when you pay that upfront money, yes, you could probably expect to get some substantial portion back. Now, there's another option, though. Uh, in this example I'm giving you, which was the 1,300-square-foot two-bedroom condo, uh, you could pay almost half that, approximately half, $750,000. Now, the nice thing about about the ability to pay much less is that for some people, that's the only way they can get in. Unfortunately, that's an amount that's pretty much non-refundable. It's all non-refundable, subject to special circumstances. And there is there are those hardship rules that if, for example, you were, uh, say you're 85 years old, uh, you move into this facility and you pass away a year later, um, or your mother or father passes away a year later. In that situation, you're probably going to get the bulk of your money back. They have a five-year amortization. If you move out in the first, or if you pass away in the first five years, you get an amortization over those five years of the portion that you get back. So that's that's encouraging. It it would otherwise it'd spook a lot of people with the idea of paying a lot of money and knowing they get nothing back. For the most part, with the one point five million, you are going to get something back for the vast majority of cases, uh, and maybe something substantial if you've been there a long time. Um, but but as to the approximately half where you don't, the hardship provisions are if you die within the first five years, and then there's another for seven years if you if you move out. But again, you you. I won't call it a penalty. I'll just say the cost is substantial if you end up moving in and not staying unless you pass away in the first five years. The moving out, you still are penalized, but you do get back a significant amount. But beyond that, there's nothing that's refunded. So it struck me as a reasonably fair policy because it's a policy that, that, that sure, if if you're not paying, if you're paying half as much to go in you sh and you're there for a long time, you shouldn't expect anything back. But if you have something weird that happens early on the front end, it's only right for them to not have a windfall profit, which is what that would be, a windfall profit uh, because, you know, you or your relative passed away in the first two or three years. So uh, that's the way that this one works. In addition to this money that you pay... There's also this monthly fee, and the monthly fee will vary wherever you are, but there will, without exception, I think, there will always be a substantial monthly fee. And it's around $6,000 for this, this, I'll call this a Class A or a five-star facility. We'll call it a five-star facility. 6000 a month that's locked in, so there's no adjustments for inflation, et cetera. It's locked in. 
Um, that's to cover some of the ongoing expenses. Now, all of your food expenses are probably not going to be covered in that, uh, although the bulk of them will. The way that that these this facility, and I think all three of these facilities operate in Florida, is that is that they have some sort of continental breakfast set out in the clubhouse, so you can go in the clubhouse and you can, you know, sit and visit and have, you know, and inexpensive. They don't pretend that it's a full breakfast. They, they, matter of fact, they don't advertise it as we provide free breakfast. Instead, it's just this continental arrangement with coffee and whatnot that a lot of people partake of, largely for social reasons. But you can make it your breakfast. And then there's enough money left in the budget. You get an annual amount per year uh, that you have to spend. So it's spend it or lose it, which, again, I don't think is too unreasonable. Because for them to operate these restaurants, they need people to use them. It's not like the problem that country clubs have. Country clubs have a minimum that you have to spend. And some people say, well, I don't want to be in a country club where I have to pay this front-end money to join. And then on top of that, I have to, to pay for these you know, this minimum expense per year. And sometimes it's it's expressed as a monthly like three or four hundred dollars a month, depending on the country club. But in defense of the country club and in defense of of these facilities, if you have people who join the club and don't eat in these restaurants, then they really can't have the restaurants. If they don't have the restaurants, then people will complain, well we have these special events. Why would I be in a country club that doesn't have a great restaurant? So the only way that that uh, arrangements like that work, whether it's a country club or whether it's retirement community, is for them to have some incentive that, look, you need to come and eat here. So the way they do that in this case is that you have this budget, but you got to spend it each year. It doesn't just accumulate. Um, and, and the amount that it works out to is a generous, high-quality dinner. It could be a lunch, but we'll say a dinner uh, each day. But in fairness, the way it was explained to me, the sum is not intended to include literally, if you were to say, well, for this amount of money, $6,000 a month, I should be able to have three big meals a day. It does, that's not built into that number. What's built into it is the assumption that you're probably going to have a pretty light meal that day, put aside breakfast, but you're going to have a light lunch maybe. Uh, you have a shuttle that goes to the near nearby grocery store, which is a Publix, they call it. That's a popular grocery store chain in Florida and Southeast. Uh, so you can easily go there and you can get whatever you want to, to cook with. So uh, it, people will. I mean, you have kitchens, and, and so a lot of people like to do their own thing. And um, that makes sense to me. It does. And it doesn't seem too unreasonable to me. So the 6000 though, pays for everything else around the community. You're not getting dinged left and right for participating in sporting activities, et cetera. No, that, that's all going to be included. Uh, the gym, workout, group activities, et cetera. Now, where we, where we were just a second ago, and what Ben was talking about, uh, I want you to understand it in the context of what I just said. Um, sometimes businesses fail. And what Ben was describing to you is what are the rules related to these businesses that might fail? And, and what if you gave $1.5 million, and incidentally, these prices went up to like 8 or $9 million, or higher, really, but they, they don't always have those available uh, because there'll always be one or two of these real expensive units. But, but it would be really uh, a sad thing to think that you could spend this money and five years later, this business, this facility goes bankrupt. And it's possible. And if it and, and so the question that we start out with, 
which is something more that a lawyer is going to look at immediately on the front end. But for you, we have to work our way around to it to kind of get to that because we know there are other things you're interested in. But one thing that that we went to and Ben went to initially when he looked at these communities was to was to look at you know to what extent is this money protected? What if the business just went under three years after you move into it, or five, or six, or eight, or ten, or twelve? It it could be way down the road. That's what's scary is you're betting that what may be forty years of your life is going to be spent in this location with all these you know these amenities functioning. And what happens, though, if 20 years from now the economy changes, demographics change, who knows what it might be, and suddenly this business is gone and you're saying, well, surely you put my $1.5 million in some sort of escrow account. And I think we know the answer is probably no. Uh, I don't think the law requires that, either in Missouri or Florida. Florida is more regulated than, than Missouri, as Ben was saying, but don't expect don't expect that this money is going to be tucked away in an FDIC-insured account. We see no evidence of that in the industry in Missouri or Florida. Is that right? That's correct, yes. But you can do things to ensure that you're picking the right facility that may not that that will stay around for the foreseeable future. Uh, something that the that most CCRCs, continuing care retirement communities, that is, do is that they will allow you to uh, look at their financial statements. If you are looking into these uh, facilities and this is something you're interested in, that's number one. Make sure that you are looking at their financial statements. If you don't understand them, take them to your financial advisor and they can explain them to you. You want to make sure that First of all, that expenses don't exceed income. Uh, if they're running in the red, that's that's a huge red flag there. You want to make sure that they have some kind of reserve that they're using for operating expenses. Also, how mortgaged is the real estate, and how exactly, and and, and uh, what banks are mortgaging the real estate, and when you know uh, how much how much debt they have indebted to financial institutions. You want to look for an occupancy percentage of uh, everything that I've researched said about greater than 90% over the last five years. If these places aren't uh, retaining people or they don't have, or they're only half full, uh, that's another red flag. And that means that they could run out of money soon. Uh, So there are, and, and as always, speak with, like I said, mentioned earlier, speak with a financial advisor to see if this is something that you can do feasibly uh, and speak with a lawyer before you sign any contract, have them look it over, make sure that the contract you're signing is up to snuff and uh, and there's no hidden clauses or anything that would make you lose money that you probably shouldn't be losing. So industry experts think that um, the ideal would be 90% occupied, 90% plus? Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, if you buy in and and you know that the occupancy rate is below what would be long-term profitability. Something's got to give. And and even if it's not a bankruptcy, such as the most extreme example we're thinking about, it could be in a way, in a in a way as bad. And that's that they really trim back benefits and they really trim back amenities and and things go unrepaired and and quality of life deteriorates. Um you know, at least if there's a bankruptcy, you know, you confront it. Hopefully you recover some of your money. You are a creditor. You're not a secured creditor, but you're a creditor. Uh, but but furthermore, you make the necessary changes to, you know, to recover your your 
quality of life that you had hopefully somewhere else. It's not a happy scenario either way, so you don't want to be in that position. But my point is that even without a bankruptcy, it can be a totally unsatisfactory situation. And then in the face of lots of lawsuits, that, that's really what triggers you know, the bankruptcy filing anyway, and it probably starts with those lawsuits of people being, feeling they're not getting what they're paid for, what they're paying for. Another thing that, that I would mention is there are facilities that have resident groups. So it's kind of like a homeowners association where uh, they want to have a voice, these resident groups want to have a voice in the management and what the rules are of the facility. Because, I mean, this is this is their home. And so they feel, I've paid this money. It's kind of like I spent a lot of money in this neighborhood and I should have a voice in my neighborhood. So that the same concept exists in these life care or life plan communities. And and I think that it's a great thing. It's a good thing to ask about that when you when you tour. You know, what what mechanism is there for people who live there to have a voice in the operations? So Ben, something that ties in with this discussion is how do you categorize these contracts? Um, there is a terminology in the industry, a type A, type B, type. And this lady I was talking to instantly in Florida, she said this is a type A facility or a type A plan, she called it. And, and you know, here I'm a lawyer, and I didn't know. I didn't know what she meant because I don't deal routinely with life care communities. So you need to know some of these terms. Can you explain how that works? Yes. Uh, so the type of contracts that you would sign for a continuing care retirement community uh, depends on whether you're prepaying, uh, putting a bunch of money down, as the, you mentioned with the uh, place that you toured, it was a you know, huge down payment and that you know would prepay for certain things. So there's a type A contract. This is also known as a life care contract. This is the one that you're putting down a huge prepayment up front. And then you have pretty expensive monthly fees as well uh, for the services provided, but also if you need skilled care or nursing care or anything of that sort later on or while you're in there uh, initially, um, this that, that initial payment is a prepayment for all of those care services as well. Uh, the type A contract is the most comprehensive, the most... Uh, kind of overall best bang for your bucks, if, if you will, um, of these communities. It's the most comprehensive. Yes. Maybe we could say that. Maybe maybe not the, maybe not the best bang for your yeah, buck. Yeah, it could it be. Is, it could yeah. be the best bang, but I don't, want, I don't think we'd say that for everybody. It would depend on some of the factors we've already talked about, but it clearly is the most comprehensive. Yes. Uh, and in the, the, the type A as well, as, as I mentioned, you still have those monthly fees on top of that. Uh, the next type of contract is the type B modified contract. This also requires a prepayment fee up front. Uh, however, it's not a, an all-inclusive prepayment fee. What it does, depending on the contract, you can either prepay for these nursing services and you get a discounted fee on them as you, as you live in this community, or these communities will sometimes offer free days per year. So maybe seven free days per year where you can go see a doctor, get your uh, health care needs met, and that prepayment fee that you paid in your Type B contract would cover all of that. Uh, but it's not as comprehensive as, as comprehensive as the Type A contract. And, and also prices can 
are, are not fixed, generally speaking. Correct. So they, they're not fixed. The month-to-month fees would uh, go up depending on cost of living adjustments uh, and things of that sort. So you're not, you're not signing something and, and uh, committing to a, a monthly fee for the foreseeable future. Those would be subject, ju- subject to change as well. The next contract, the Type C contract, uh, this is also known as a fee-for-service contract. This has a low buy-in. Uh, you you'll, you pay sometimes a, a low buy-in fee, but it's not used as a prepayment for these healthcare services. Uh, these fees that, that say you needed to to go see a doctor or use these facil- the healthcare facilities at the uh, CCRC. Uh, those would be added to your monthly fees, so it's it, it gets you into the place and 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 living there. But everything that you would spend money on, if you did need extended care, uh, that would be added to your monthly fee and would be cost you extra on top of the fee. So you're essentially paying. they're not locking in anything for you. Um, and again, sitting on the other side of the table, so it doesn't seem exploitive to you, uh, is that. They, in that case, they're just saying, look, whatever prices are, they're going to be. And, you know, whenever prices go up, we're going to raise your prices just like we would if you were coming into a restaurant periodically, you know, from time to time. So, so in this case, though, you, as Ben said, you get in and the prices, they may stay the same. It's not automatic that they go up. But, but if, if you have inflation, increased costs and stuff, the prices are going to go up. And you pay as you go, but you also have a shorter term commitment. Are these like one year contracts, or I'm, I'm not sure, but that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, you can expect that it's a, it's a shorter contract. Um, so it's kind of like a lease. You know, you move into a place, except you have lots of services that that you can probably know on an annual basis what they're going to be, but you can't know what they're going to be next year or the year after. Uh, but the but the good thing about it is, and the incentive that these facilities have to keep you happy is that. If they raise them too fast, you're probably going to move. On the other hand, some people, I guess it's the nature of this industry that people who think it's home and move in, maybe they're less inclined to move, actually, as I think about it. So, so there are incentives on both sides to, uh, to try to work with those, with those changes that will happen over time in what it costs to live there. Um, so it's hard to, to judge whether one is better than the other. There, there's still this thing they call uh, a type D. And what is a type D? So type D is kind of the catch-all contract. Uh, the most common type D contract is a rental agreement. All that is is you're renting out a an accommodation at these facilities, and then all of the services, and you'll pay a monthly fee for probably some bare bones services, utilities, and utilities, etc. Uh, but if you you know think the amenities and food and everything is all uh, a la carte, uh, it was it's pay as you go, and of course it, uh, the healthcare services as well, you would pay for those on top of any rental agreement you would have. Uh, some other things is some other types of contracts involved in type D contracts. There's also uh, something called a continuing care retirement community without walls. And that's almost the opposite of a rental agreement. It gets you uh, access to the services at these uh, communities, but it doesn't. But you don't have to live there. If you eventually do want to live there later, you kind of get an in to the community and may have discounted fees there. Um, but that's that's the other contract there. That's an interesting concept. I've never heard of that. So people live where they want to live, and at this central location, they have all these services that are provided for seniors. Yes. Huh. 
So one thing I didn't mention that this facility has that I'm using as an example here in Florida and I think is is common, such as you made reference to this a while ago, is that they'll have doctors who, concierge doctors essentially, who you've already paid for depending on your contract. I mean, if you have a type A contract, then that includes all your you know, your doctor visits, everything. At some point, if you have a serious expense, it's going to be picked up by Medicare if you have to be hospitalized or somewhere. And of course, then you'd go somewhere else if it's a normal hospitalization. But but still, in terms of your daily seeing a doctor, you know, your personal doctor is right there on the property, all full-time. Matter of fact, there are five or six. You can meet with them and choose who you want. Uh, but I mean, they're all top physicians from a top hospital locally. It's a physician's group that's actually affiliated with the hospital. So probably the hospital owns the groups the way it works these days. So, But this group rotates. It spends its time. You know, so the, it, their, Its patients is it, are in this facility. That's their entire patient base, I believe. So um, it's an interesting arrangement. And, uh, and I can see how it's very attractive for a lot of people. One thing that we should touch on before we wrap up this subject, is um, the whole idea of real estate ownership versus just a contract. Now, to lawyers, this is a big deal. Many times people who look at these, they don't think that way. But um, there is a big difference. Are you buying real estate? In other words, do you get a deed like you would if you bought a condominium? I mean, after all, you're paying $1.5 million. You'd think you'd get a deed, right? Well, the answer in most places is no. But anyway... Uh, if you buy a condominium, normally there's a deed. Alternatively, if there's not a deed, you're buying a contract, and it's a kind of like a it's a personal service contract that includes housing. So it's like you're leasing space coupled with a personal service contract. Um, that that means that if things go south, as we were describing a while ago, that you you often lose your money. And this is this really ties in with the point we we're making a while ago, and maybe that. That will make more sense to you. That that you know when whenever you own a piece of real estate, and maybe the neighborhood around you goes down, it might affect property values. But you still own your house, and you can sell it for something. Uh, but not true for the majority of these deals. Can you shed some more light on that, Ben? Sure. It, it, so. Speaking on whether you would own a house or versus just renting, if you sign a rental agreement, you don't own equity in it and you would just be renting once you pass away nothing would fall to your estate. Uh, when it comes to estate planning, though, whether you own equity in a, a, an accommodation or a condo that you buy uh, at these retirement communities is important in, in, in planning your estate after you pass away. And again, it kind of just comes down to what type of contract you sign. Some contracts have in there that you own the the house that you buy at these retirement communities free and clear. It will pass down into your estate after you Particularly pass away. Particularly the freestanding houses, right? Yes, yeah. yes, correct. Uh, and, and it'll pass down to your estate after you pass away, and then they can sell it and do whatever. Uh, some have a little more restrictions on it where you do own it, but the retirement community itself... 
has final say in who gets to buy and sell it, uh, who gets to live in it. If if part of their rules are that you have to be a certain age to live in these, then you can't, As a, if you're a 30-year-old who just inherited this property, you can't go and live in it. And then you'll have to go through the uh, the facility themselves in order to sell it and try to, try to find a buyer for it. So it does complicate matters a little bit uh, if they do have kind of more robust rules, uh, if, the, if these facilities have these rules that limit who gets to buy and sell property on their campuses. Um, yeah, and and, a, and a, one way to think about the idea of being restrictions on who you sell to and have to be approved, et cetera, think about those of you who've lived in places that have cooperatives. Uh, Missouri, it's not a popular means of ownership in Missouri. In Manhattan, it's very common. You have cooperative buildings. Well, those are actually owned units. Well, not the units themselves. They own uh, an interest in the real estate. And uh, so it isn't. It is a real interest, but they own an interest in the whole. So still, they have this exclusive right to occupy the place that they live in. But but here's the common denominator: you you actually have to have a vote by the people in the building to approve, or the management, or some committee to approve your buying that, or or the person selling. Put it a different way: the person who's selling it, the buyer has to be approved. So. It's a similar thing with some of these facilities. I know in St. Louis, one of the more reputable ones, there is a rule that you um, you only get your money back when they sell it to somebody else. So that can be a little scary because if the place has a bad reputation or just pe- there isn't a market for it too, then that means you don't have a buyer. And if you don't have a buyer, it means you're not getting any money. So on the one hand, when you know you would be told that you have an ownership interest, you have equity in this, but on the other hand, what good is the equity if you can't find a buyer uh, who is going to pay the money that you want? And they have to approve this buyer. So you're really at the mercy of this facility. Now, on one hand, you can say, well, you're always at the mercy of whether or not you have a buyer. Um, so that's probably not too fair a complaint. The problem is, though, whether you have a buyer is so much in the hands of the facility. So I guess that's what distinguishes it from normally when you own real estate. Normally, yeah, you always have to find a buyer. But you know, finding that buyer is very much in the hands of somebody else. And, uh, and a lot will depend on the reputation of the facility. But all in all, I'm not saying it's a terrible concept. Uh, I understand the idea. They're thinking that we need the money of the buyer in order to give you back your money. One thing it does tell you is this money must not be an escrow. Because if it were an escrow, you'd think they could cut a check and then go find somebody to occupy your unit. Uh, but anyway, I understand that they do need operating capital and this money is not being escrowed and saved. So that's a little bit of a red flag, but you can't really insist on that because I don't think it's something that happens in the industry. So yeah, ideally, you know, a lawyer that that looks at this is going to say to you, likely for a facility you're looking at is, you know, it would really be much better if this money were escrowed uh, in some insured account. I just think if if the market doesn't offer that, I mean, all you can do is storm away I mean, you know, and it's not a sas- that's not a satisfactory solution. So I think that that people instead they bet on the reputations of these facilities. They bet on their history. They bet on some of the points that Ben was making a while ago. You know, you look at occupancy rate. You look at the history. You look at the financials. 
Um, you look at, at what what does their balance sheet look like? What what are their debts relative to their to their income? So uh, and their assets. So these are things that that you can get a good feel for what lies ahead. But if if this product that we're you know wishing for doesn't exist or that you're wishing for, then then you often move forward with the options you have. I mean that's what we do because the alternative is we continue living at home and. And while that may be safer in some respects, in other respects, it's not. So there's uncertainty in life, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we hope this discussion has been helpful to you. Uh, in many ways, I can tell you I'm a fan of these communities, uh, but but all of the cautionary points that we've raised, I, I encourage you to consider uh, but I also encourage you to look at these facilities and think about them as a realistic option uh, in Missouri or in Florida or maybe somewhere else. Anyway, I hope this has been helpful to you. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.